So, kids, caught anything? Not yet, sir. Uh-huh. Uh, what are you using for bait? My brother's using worms, but I, who feel the tranquility far outweighs the actual catching of fish, am using nothing. I see. And uh, what's your name, son? Well, I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm Dave Shutton. I'm an investigative reporter who's on the road a lot, and uh, I must say that in my day, we didn't talk that way to our elders. Well, this is my day, and we do, sir. <laughs> All right, we eat tonight. Wait a minute. One, two, three. Hundred dollar down here now, ten and out, twenty-five and out, thirty-five and out, fifty now, sixty will give me sixty now, seventy-five, seventy-five another, eighty-five dollars on the bond there. There was a boy in Arkansas who wouldn't listen to his ma when she told him he should go to school. He'd sneak away in the afternoon, take a little walk, then pretty soon you'd find him at the local auction barn. He'd stand and listen carefully, then pretty soon he began to see how the auctioneer could talk so rapidly. He said, oh my, it's do or die, I've got to learn that auction cry, gotta make my mark and be an auctioneer. Twenty-five dollar bid, and I'll thirty dollar thirty, will you give me thirty, make it thirty bid, upon my thirty dollar, will you give me thirty, who did bid a thirty dollar bid? Thirty dollar bid, and I'll thirty-five, will you give me thirty-five, to make it thirty-five, a bid of thirty-five, who would have bid it at a thirty-five dollar bid? As time went on, he did his best, and all could see he didn't jest. He practiced calling bids both night and day. His pap would find him behind the barn just working up an awful storm as he tried to imitate the auctioneer. Then his pap said, son, we just can't stand to have a mediocre man selling things at auction using our good name. I'll send you off to auction school, then you'll be nobody's fool. You can take your place among the best. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Predator Podcast for another episode. Yes, long awaited as usual, and I did promise to have it out soon, which, uh, yeah, it was quite a while ago now, but I've been a little bit busy. I'm currently in Queensland, Cairns, Queensland, Australia. And I've been over in Australia since about the 23rd of February. So coming up on a few weeks now and it all started. I left uh, left from Edinburgh, went to Dubai, went from Dubai to uh, Melbourne. 25 hour flight, lovely as always. Just have to try and avoid the beer on the trip so you're not uh, drunk and hung over on the one flight. Absolutely smashed the jet lag and then enjoyed a four hour drive home back to my parents' farm where I stayed there for about a week and a half. Caught a few uh, redfin as we call them in Australia or perch to you guys and uh, mucked around on the farm shooting things and catching yabbies and all that good stuff. And I scooted over to South Australia to see my sister's farm then up straight up the middle flew up to Darwin which is uh, where I used to do a lot of my guiding and stuff and caught up with my brother he's up there still doing his full-time barramundi guiding and uh, went down the daily with my mate Mick and my dad the daily river is where we went and fished we got in about three days worth of fishing there managed to score a fair few barramundi nothing really of size and uh, lots of psychopathic uh, bull sharks that's the uh, sharks you might have seen on the show, uh, Jeremy Wade's uh, Mega Scary Superfish show, whatever that one was. 
Uh, yeah, the bull sharks that run up into fresh water and uh, absolutely psycho. So that was good fun for a couple of days. It was about uh, 33 degrees up there and most of the time about 80% humidity, if not more. We did a couple of few massive storms out in our little boat. Um, so that was all good. But the pinnacle of this trip, I'm just uh, geeing up for this morning. It's taken months of planning. I've flown from Darwin over to Cairns with Mick and caught up with one of our mates, Faz, over here. And uh, we're starting a mission. Today we're going to be driving four hours from Cairns westerly across Queensland and having a camp there tonight and then driving another four hours or so in the morning to a place called Kurumba in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And then the following day we're taking our boat and meeting up with two of our mates over there with their boat as well. We're running 130 kilometres up the coast to a little secret river that I used to guide at for Barra. And we're going to attempt to camp up there in amongst all the crocodiles and snakes and things for about a week um, and go fishing for ginormous barramundi and uh, a few other bits and pieces in between but it's going to be probably the biggest fishing trip I've ever done off my own back and uh, yeah it's a hell of a mission we've got a helicopter flying out on the second day to bring us fuel and water and maybe once more during the trip if we need him and uh, we've got bloody car fridges and camping gear and cans of food and toilet paper and everything that we hope that we would need tons of tackle and uh, tons of camera gear so it's going to be an absolute monstrous trip everything seems to be running a little bit too smoothly at the moment and uh, we're just about to leave uh, phone service for the next week we've got a satellite phone as our only means of communication so hopefully that doesn't get dropped over the board and uh yeah about to uh send it out into the unknown and uh it's a it's a pretty well-renowned river for those who know about it and i spent about seven or eight months there guiding people for these huge fish all the guiding operations out there now are shut down uh, the river hasn't been fished by proper uh companies for probably five years so it's going to be a hell of a trip we've heard uh, small reports over the last um, couple of years about people who have been out there and as usual it's it's uh, definitely come up trump so that's going to be me so i'm going to pop the podcast out and then you won't be able to hear from me or talk to me um, anyway so i wanted to get it out in time for the trout opening season that's coming up in scotland i believe the 15th of march that starts and this episode is with senior fisheries biologist alan kettle white now he works for the argyle fisheries trust and he i met him up at lock or actually this time last year it must have been um he was having a little meeting there with the uh with the fisheries trust about changing size limits and stuff anyway i think we talk about during the show and uh yeah no doubt he'll be attempting to get out there on opening weekend for the ferox trout uh unlike my uh run up the coast uh in two days time i've got predicted two to three knot winds which is just going to be awesome 
Uh, the guys heading up for Ferox trout season are looking at some, yeah, heartbreaking wins. So whether anyone gets out or not could be another story. But uh, last time we were up there, it was pretty much the same deal. It was absolutely howling and blowing a gale and sidewaysy wind, sideways rain. Uh, so, yeah, it's not going to be too enjoyable up there for the Ferox, but uh, it is Scotland after all. It's part of a package deal. So while you're all freezing back there, I'll be sweating my ring out in uh, North Queensland somewhere. So I hope you're all not jealous. And uh, yeah, here's Alan Kettle White. We talk about uh, a lot to do with uh, wild salmon and salmon farming, which is pretty damn good. Got a bit of a lesson in that. And um, amongst other things, I'll let you find out for yourself. Time to pack the boat. And I'll see you on the other side. So from that boy who went to school, there grew a man who played it cool. He came back home a full-fledged auctioneer. Then the people came from miles around just hear him make that rhythmic sound that filled their hearts with such a happy cheer. His fame spread out from shore to shore, he had all he could do and more. Had to buy a plane to get around. Now he's the tops in all the land, and it all to give that man a hand. He's the best of all the auctioneers. Forty-five-dollar bid, another fifty-dollar fifty. Will they give me fifty? Make it fifty bid, all the fifty-dollar. Will they give me fifty? Who'd bid a fifty-dollar bid? Fifty-dollar bid, another fifty-five. Will they give me fifty-five? To make it a fifty-five, a bid a fifty-five. I sold that home for a fifty-dollar bill. All right, sir, open the gate and let them out and walk them, boys. Here we come a lot, number 29 in. What are they going to give for them? I'm a 25, I'll get 35, another 50, make a 50, bit of wrong, a 50, now 60, will they give me 60, now 75, now 85, now 95, 100, now 25, now 50, 75, now 2, now 3, now 4, now 5, now 6, now 7, now 8, all right, I have with me Alan Kettle White from, uh, well, I met him in Loch Awe around about a year ago. Um, this time last year, the start of the trout season up at Loch Awe, and he gave me his card, and he was listed as the Argyle Fisheries Trust senior biologist, is it, or junior biologist? A senior. <laughs> I'm over 50, so I can't be junior anymore. All <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, you're the full-time senior fisheries biologist? That's right. Um, That's your job. I'm working for the... Fishery Trust for the last, well, it's 20 years this year, actually. So, yeah, right. uh, based up on the west coast of Scotland, on the banks of Loch Hall. So, they give uh, you uh, a, mm. uh, a gold watch this year, then? <laughs> Golden hook, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. So, um, well, that's a good yeah, way so to get started. It's a good way to get started. Tell us, tell us all about your job. It sounds like a, a bit of a dream job, really. So, um, yeah, go nuts. What what does your career involve? Well, um, I guess my, I, I went uh, back to school when I was in my mid twenties. Um, I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. Been travelling around a lot and uh, couldn't find any focus. But that kind of core thing of Fish and fishing has always been there for me, so <laughs> I went to um, Sparshaw College, you might have heard of it, near Winchester, and did a degree course there in uh, aquaculture and fisheries management. Yeah, okay. And during that course, sorry? I was agreeing. During Sounds that good. course, 
Yeah, it was it was a great course, a great bunch of guys down there, and I learned loads. Um, and the good thing about that course was um, it gave you a chance to look around and to see where you might want to end up. So it was a three-year course. And so you'd have like a three-week study periods where you could go off and find your own uh, placement and work in different areas. And one of those placements, I came up to Lahore, and it just blew me away. I just thought it was an absolutely amazing place. It's an <laughs> I'll amazing just, um, place. I'll just stop you there for a second. I'm just going to kill this uh, this video feed because it's making it a bit slow for us. But um, everything else will right. still everything else will still carry on. You just won't have to look at my ugly mug. Um, okay, I'll turn mine off. That'll help, maybe. Yeah, it'll just it'll just speed it up. There's a, a slight delay. All right, okay. so you came up to Lockor and you thought this is a bit of all right. Yeah, I mean, fantastic um, place, and I did a little bit of fishing. I uh, got to know the area a little bit, and it was always there in the back of my mind. So um, when I finished my course there was a, an opportunity came up to work with the bi biologist here. Um, and so I came up for a summer, absolutely loved it. Um, but there was only a summer position. So I went away, did a bit more traveling <laughs> and came back and uh, worked the next summer. And the biologist who was here then left, went off to America. Oh, very um, nice. So, so I was <laughs> then in the front seat for the job. <laughs> which I managed to get. So, yeah, so I spent the last 20 years really um, enjoying myself here in, in these parts. It's an amazing place with uh, beautiful scenery, some wonderful uh, fishing. Um, but it's, it's not all been easy because uh, fish populations haven't been as what they should be um, due to a number of reasons. So it's been my job to try and help improve the situation, which has been proved actually very difficult. Yeah, right. So do you consider yourself a, a real true Scotsman now or you still got... Uh... Well, you can tell by my accent that I'm not. Uh, I don't wear a kilt. So, <laughs> Although I must say, uh, this part of the world does feel like home now. So uh, I am in a way, yes. Excellent. <laughs> in other parts, when it comes to sport, probably no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's good to hear. Good to hear. So things must have changed uh, a hell of a lot in the last 20 years then been in the in the position what were you scratching around trying to do right back then when you started what were some of the first things you're involved with then yeah so um the main focus up here i guess where the kind of economic value of fisheries is is in salmon and sea trout and so in the west coast um may not be as famous for its salmon uh, and sea trout fishing as the big east coast rivers like the spay you know, and the Tweed and, and these other big rivers, we have quite a, a number. So like in, in Argyle alone, Argyle in the islands, there's over 30 rivers, you know, yeah. which could class themselves as fisheries. Um, and, and over 300 rivers that actually have salmon or sea trout, or both. <laughs> so they're all small systems, but they all have populations of salmon and sea trout, which have, have you traditionally been to have provided fisheries. Have you been to all of them? Just about. <laughs> it feels like it. My, my legs are, are kind of hanging in there. Um, so <laughs> we do through a, a lot of... You've been through a few pairs of waders then? Yeah, just a few. I usually get through about uh, one a season, so yeah, 20, <laughs> 20 pairs. 
<laughs> so, yeah, so we've been collecting data on, on the habitat and also on the fish themselves, um, trying to pinpoint issues uh, and advise the fishery owners and, and anglers and like about how to uh, best preserve uh, what we've got. Yeah, right. So I guess it's I guess it's a, about time I eventually got schooled in the salmon side of things. I've only I've done a, a little bit of fishing for salmon and hooked and lost a couple, uh, heartbreakingly. But it's not something that I've ever been too familiar with uh, since I'm not from this part of the world. We don't have proper. Well, we've got Australian salmon where I'm from, but they're not uh, the fully fledged. Atlantic fellows that you have so I guess we'd better get stuck into it so we've either got the the wild population to talk about and I guess the farming side of things uh, yeah what, what do you want to take a strike at first well let's let's go for the wild um <laughs> in that I, I guess um actually because most of the, the salmon rivers are quite small um so they're, they're kind of spate rivers so you'll get after rain, you'll get a few days where the river's r- risen, and usually these are the best times to fish. So yep. salmon start to arrive usually in late June, mid-June, and they'll, they'll keep coming into the rivers all the way through to the end of October when the season closes. Okay. Um, and they usually come on high water, and when the water drops, they'll sit in pools and they become very spooky, um, difficult to catch, but you no... Know, when you get the spades, that's the time to fish. And usually because um, West Coast rivers are smaller, the pools are more defined compared yeah. to East Coast rivers. Um, usually, you know, when the conditions are right, it's actually easier to catch salmon and sea trout on these smaller West Coast rivers okay. than it is one of these very big East Coast rivers. Because, I mean, I've been I've fished all over Scotland, and you tend to find that, Okay, um, it tends to be more water in these big rivers, uh, and the salmon are more catchable, if you like, in terms of the the amount of water. But trouble is, is finding them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and the so, pools are very big. So, so, so when they're a bit more constricted and a bit more limited, do you reckon it? Uh, if you know the place well enough, it's a bit easier to uh, get a get a fly or a lure in front of them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Um, are, the, are the fishing windows smaller? Like a, a small river must drain out pretty quickly. Like the, the window of opportunity for ideal sort of river height must be shorter, is it? That's right, yeah, definitely. So it's like if, if somebody was coming up to Argyle and they wanted to do some salmon fishing, you're probably better off um, uh, maybe not booking in a week, um, just be in a position to get on the river. Hmm. Um, be it a day ticket or whatever, um, when the when the conditions are right, and when they're not right, then go and fish for something else, uh, like brown trout in hill rocks or, or something else like that, or pike in Loch Or. You know, so you can there's a, there's a big diversity in Argyle, and yeah. you kind of have to use the weather windows to target those different species. And definitely for salmon, then uh, um, it, it helps to have some rain. Yeah, that's right. I'm sure uh, salmon fishermen aren't under any illusion uh, when it comes to a, a bit of guiding. You know, you really have to put in the trips and the hours to get anywhere near any sort of result. Yeah, it's like any travelling angler or, or any 
anybody who fish for migratory fish that move on high water. Mm. Um, you know, weather, weather is key. And if you if you come up and get a you know a really blue skies, no rain, low water, no bright sun, your, your chances of catching salmon are, are sort of much diminished. Yeah, I guess um, it's not hard, not too hard to keep your clients happy up in Scotland since it is. It is a very unique part of the world, a very small but unique part of the world with the hill locks and everything. It's a, it's a stark contrast to where I first started off over here in Yorkshire, fishing the canals and muddy rivers down there. It's a, right. It's a whole different ball game once you go up to somewhere like Loch Awe. Absolutely. Um, in, co- in contrast, from the, the, uh, the small rivers, then you've got huge lochs to fish mm. as well. So, I mean, that's daunting in, on the other perspective in that the fish are actually quite hard to find sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so so as far as I know, um, with my limited fishing experience, uh, I've just seen, well, article after article about the wild salmon stocks and there was headlines sort of late last year about no fish were caught in this fishery for the entire season. So do you want to expand yeah. on that and uh, fill us in on exactly what's going on and what's happening to these wild stocks? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a number of issues at the moment um, with wild salmon and sea trout. So you've got your kind of bigger overarching problems that are affecting Atlantic salmon across its whole range, you know, North America, Scandinavia, Iceland, and Scotland, is the fact that um, fewer salmon are returning to spawn. So it seems, it appears to be that there's still quite a few young fish leaving our rivers and entering the ocean and making that migration up um, into the North Atlantic uh, via the Faroe Islands into the North Norwegian Sea. Um, but then they seem to disappear in large numbers. Right. So there's been some studies done which showed you know, 30 years ago, about 15, 20% of the smolts, the salmon smolts that left our rivers actually came back as adults. Yeah. But now what we're finding is even, even big rivers like the East Coast, it, it can be 5% or less. I'll just jump in there since this is really your wheelhouse how would one go about figuring out those numbers say if 30% were returning and now it's 5% how, how does someone like you go about finding this out because no doubt that has been your job for the last 20 years well I've been on the periphery of these things that these kind of bigger projects are run by uh, national uh, labs scientists and what they've been doing is they tag smolts uh, before they leave the river. So they'll, they'll put a tag in the fish and um, they're able to read that tag when it comes back into fresh water. Yeah. Um, so they can see the percent that they tagged what come back. So, so if they up, tagged, uh, it's up, it's up they to, tagged 100 it's up to, fish and then 10 came back, you've got your 10% sea survival. So we just started a project here, actually, um, on the River Ore, which is our biggest catchment uh, in Argyll. And so government scientists are putting a thing called a pit tag, which has got a unique number, and that gets put into the fish's stomach cavity as it leaves the catchment. It's all been studied, you know, and the fish survive, okay, these little procedures. And they swim off into the ocean, and um, because we have a, a barrage 
on the lower part of our river, the fish have to come through a fish counter. Ah. <laughs> so we then put this um, tag detector um, in the fish pass. So every fish that comes through back into fresh water is going to pass this, this detector. So we should get a really good idea of how many of those fish that were tagged are returning as elves. So that will have so, the, the, each fish's unique identification, or it's just there's a fish, there's a tag? That's right. It's called a, it's called a pit tag. And like you say, it's got a unique number in that tag, which can be read. So we would know exactly when that fish left the river and exactly when it came back. Do you go so Hopefully far? With, uh, at Pit Lockery, I was there not too long ago, um, where they've got the uh, viewing window. Has, yes. anything, has anything been done where they can set up a camera at the same time to be able to sort of measure them at the same time? Or it's yeah. just a... We've actually got a, a camera on our, on our fish counter. So I then have to go and um, download all these pictures and go through them and uh, then kind of get, assign it a length in terms of how many years it's been at sea. Because so there's, there's usually a mixed stock of fish. So some salmon, they, they return back to our shores after one winter. So they leave in the spring as smolts and they'll migrate north and spend one, week, uh, one winter in the, in the Atlantic and then they'll begin to come back and they'll enter the river the following summer. So that's, that's a one sea winter fish, which is commonly known as a, something called a grilse. Yep. Um, but other fish will stay longer. So sometimes they'll stay two or th even three, sometimes even four winters. Those are your really big fish, <laughs> uh, big salmon that come back. Might have been at sea for about, for, could be three, four, five years before they actually come back to fresh water. So you do get a mix. Um, of age classes coming back um, but we found here locally that you know our survival rates are even lower than, than on the east coast so the things that we think about you know there's added pressures on our west coast fish which might well be to do with fish farming so we get so problems really with uh, with these uh, with these pick tags and cameras set up at uh, at your river mouth there, when you head down and download the data and it says that one of these fish that's uh, overwintered for three seasons in the sea, one of the real big girls, comes through the river, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you look at the size of it, do you say, oh, looks like that fish passed through here two hours ago. I think he might be in this pool. I might just go up there for a little cast. <laughs> <laughs> well the problem is is that um when the fish go through the counter they swim they swim straight into La Hall. So they're quite difficult to find in La Um but yeah, you're shot. quite right in that um there, there's now quite a bit of knowledge to suggest um when some bigger fish turn up because we do get a few big fish. Um so um not last year, the year before, the uh the biggest fly caught salmon was caught on the River Or here in Argyll. Yeah, right. And that was over 40 pounds. Um, so we do get a few big fish. And funny enough, it's, it's, it's a fish which I think um, it was caught in the September. But I think it might have been either the same fish or a very similar fish that I hooked uh, in May. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not joking. So I mean, it got away, did it? I spent all summer 
drowning my sorrows that having lost this huge salmon. <laughs> um, a good friend of mine actually um, caught this fish in the same pool that I'd lost this, this monster. Um, so and it could well have been the fish that I lost in the May. Yeah, that he right. won the Malaga Trophy with in September. So, <laughs> so that was quite interesting. So did it make it to the lock at all? Or did you hook it and never saw it go through the uh, the cameras and uh, then it showed up on your mate's line? Well, actually, I don't think it did go through the counter, so it could have well been there all summer. Um, um, we don't actually get a, a good picture of absolutely every single fish, yeah. um, but we, we get, we're able to see most of them. And I don't think that fish went through the counter. Um, so it could well have been the same fish. So all, yeah. this, all, that, this da- all this data you're getting, is that um, publicly available? Um, I guess... We will be, because the, the data itself actually belongs to government scientists, because um, they're running the project and, so, and they own it because they're paying for all the tags and the, all the equipment. So it's a government run project and they're, they're not um, the quickest at turning around information and, and giving it out. But yeah. certainly where we're um, given the, uh, the information, we will publish it as and when we can. Yeah, Usually on our website. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, do you take bribes? Because I know a few wealthy. Yeah. Uh, I know, well, a, know, know just... a few wealthy salmon fishermen. <laughs> yeah, we we don't get many big fish here. Uh, there's there's usually only a, a handful, and some years we don't get many big fish at all. So that's just about the size of our catchments, really. Not producing that many of these big fish, but from year to year, sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. And you have to be around um, usually late April or May uh, when those fish turn up. So there's a fairly short window uh, when they come in fresh is when they're going to more likely take a fly mm. uh, when they're fresh. Or and so and there's very few other fish around at the time. So not a lot of anglers are prepared to go fishing blindly uh, for a fish that might or might not be there. <laughs> so. <laughs> When I, when I do go fishing for those kind of fish, I'm usually the only one <laughs> on the river <laughs> those times because uh, nobody else fancies the odds. Ah, well, <laughs> you got to be in it to win it, don't you? You do, so, you do. So what are the big threats that are uh, playing out away from the river that are, that's diminishing these salmon stocks, obviously, massively? Yeah, it's it's... It's a thing that's crept up on us really, and that's uh, the, the kind of wider belief is it's a lot to do with climate change. Yeah. So if you get um, temperature warming, warmer seas, you know that can change the whole food chain, and that's been linked to different types of phytoplankton. So in cold water, you tend to get a very um, nutrient-rich water supply with nutrient-rich food items. But warmer water tends to be less so. So when you see a downturn in things like um, seabird colonies, mm. puffins and, and birds like that, that usually gives you a big hint that the, the ocean is not being as productive as it once was. But you can have – these things can fluctuate. So you get up like a, a an oscillation in the North Atlantic where – different temperatures tend to dominate for periods of time. And these can fluctuate between a decade, three or four years. It can be as long as 20 years. So 
Um, these things are up and down, and it can change very quickly. So at the moment, we appear to be in, in quite a poor uh, period for, for actual uh, food. So it's very possible that a lot of our fish are starving, not actually finding enough to eat. Um, yeah, right. either on their way to the main feeding grounds or, or actually in the feeding grounds off the North Norwegian Sea. So with the massive downturn in the salmon populations at the moment, is this, uh, is this just a, a temporary thing you've seen in the last couple of years or is this at the, the pointy end of a large trend? Well, it's been up and down. I mean, so during the, 90, during the 1980s, salmon numbers were quite good all across their range. But in the 90s, there was a fall off. So we went actually quite to low numbers, um, particularly here on, on the West Coast. Um, so the tail end of the 90s was really poor. It's probably as bad as it is just at the moment. And then it, all of a sudden it clicked and the numbers picked up real quick. And so we had improvements all the way through uh, from, from 1999, 2000, all the way through um, to 2000 sort of uh, 9, 10. And since then, it, we've had a slow drop-off again, but the last two years have been particularly bad. So, because we've got a fish counter here, we have a very good idea. So, yeah. and that's been going since like the early 1960s. So if you worked out the average number of salmon coming through that counter, would be something like 2,500 fish every year on average. Um, but in 2017, we only got 480. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so you're talking about a, a huge decline. Okay, uh, 2018 was better, um, where we got 1,100 fish through. So, but we're still, that's still only half of what we might expect uh, yeah. over the longer term. So you get these ups and downs um, uh, from year to year. But the long-term trend is actually one of decline, quite worrying decline, really. Yeah, right. So you must have to project uh, numbers over the next few years and a threshold, like a lower lower threshold and what action would need to be taken or what would be a, a good upper threshold for, for a population. What can you tell us about what you'd predict in the future for the wild stocks and, and how would it be dealt with, whether they're too low or, or coming back on strongly? Yeah, I guess the first thing is that you have to react um, to the numbers of fish coming back because obviously as local managers or fisheries interests, there's not much we can do here in Argyll about the temperature of the North Atlantic. <laughs> so what we have to do, our priority really is, is to react in the right way and that's obviously we need enough of those uh, adult salmon to actually spawn to create enough juveniles so the small ones keep going. Um, so the biggest thing here is is obviously once these numbers drop, we have to go to a catch and release situation. Yep. Um, so pretty much we, we in our guy we took that um, decision uh, quite some time ago to go uh, mostly catch and release fishing for salmon. But now uh, the government have stepped in and now we, all rivers are graded based on their rod catch yep. um, and the likelihood of them getting an, enough fish to lay enough eggs to get enough smolts going out to keep the species healthy or the population healthy. 
So really, at the moment, uh, although we've been doing the right thing locally, the government now, government scientists now, give us a, a grade, if you like, for each river, uh, based on the numbers of fish caught in the previous five years, whether that's a safe limit or whether we have to go catch and release or park catch and release. Um, so most of our rivers here, because we're populations are fairly small, most of our rivers are catch and release now, by law. So those um, those grades, was it from A to D or A to C or something? I remember last year it was very restrictive on Scotland overall. Yeah. So how's it, how's it looking this, this year compared to last year? Yeah, I mean it's it's. It's not as reactive in one year. It takes an average of five, the last five years. But um, so you can have a couple of bad years and still maintain a park catch, uh, a take fishery. Um, but if you have a string of bad years, four or five, then you you, you will go down uh, into what we call a grade three uh, catch and release. So okay. grade two is where you're you're not far away from meeting your conservation limit or you're thereabouts then you can go um, to a situation where you can take a limited number of fish. So you might take a, a small percentage of the, say, the one sea winter fish. Um, and then if you're a grade one, then it's really down to the local fishery managers um, to say, uh, they can take all the fish you catch or some of the fish you catch. No, it's really down to um, how the, ma the local managers uh, assess their stock. Yeah. Okay. So, so we, I guess I'm, I guess I'm part of, well, I'm 33 now. I think part of a sort of a younger generation, and we're fairly catch and release oriented in, a, well, in yeah. Australia. Probably not even so compared to the UK. You guys are, are bonanzas about it. But uh, with salmon fishing, obviously, it is a, a lot older age demographic. I, I think you'd have to be absolutely nuts. Even even on a good year of salmon fishing, you're lucky to catch, I don't know, half a dozen would be pretty incredible. But surely to kill a salmon when your catch returns are so small, you'd have to be fairly well ingrained in the old ways. Yeah, I mean, there are, there's a lot of um, uh, moaning and groaning, obviously, um, from particularly from the older generation of anglers that have been used to taking their fish. Mm. Uh, enjoy taking them home, and I think that's fair enough. When you know, when you have a, a harvest of all surplus, there's nothing wrong with taking uh, a fish here and there. Yep. But when you're down to the bare bones where we are at the moment, we need all those fish to spawn. Um, so, yeah, th th there is a quite a lot of um, discussion, shall we say, um, at a local level. Um, not so much about the catch and release now. I think most people get it. Um, I think the the real um, discussions are something what we should do about it. Yeah, sure. I guess uh, with everyone's got a, a fairly serious camera in their pocket these days with mobile phones and stuff, it's only it's only going to be going towards more catch and release, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I don't. So I don't we, see, we've kind of tried. I don't see it going the other direction um, anyway. Yeah, making sure that, that people's technique is good. Because obviously uh, people who've been used to taking their fish will handle a fish a lot differently to somebody <laughs> who intends to return it. Yeah. So yeah, we, we kind of our kind of mantra now is is sort of you know keep, things like keep them wet, you know, and yep. um, uh, single uh, 
microbarbs, hooks, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, strong tackle, playing them quick and getting them back, and uh, maybe not even fishing if it gets too warm. These these kind of things to to make sure we have as little impact as possible on the next generation of fish. Yeah, sure. I mean, I thought we were pretty uh, catch and release orientated in Australia, but uh, yeah, I fought. I felt the full wrath of the uh, the uh, fish handling police when I got over here and started putting up some photos <laughs> of, of my catches. Yeah, apparently yeah, I've been doing just, it entirely wrong my whole life, but uh, I, yeah, I've changed. I've changed my ways. I got to say. <laughs> well, we can all. Everybody can learn, you know, better ways of doing. <laughs> Even me. <laughs> yeah, yeah and everybody can. Me myself, you know, I learn stuff all the time. Um, about uh, different things about fish, including handling them and treating them in the best way possible. It's just, uh, it gives me, uh, as an angler, uh, primarily, it gives me a lot bigger reward when I see it, and I know a fish has gone back healthy. Yeah. And I've handled it well. And, and uh, it's, you know, there's no, there's none of the worse if you see what I mean, when it swims back in the water. It gives me, that gives me a lot of pleasure. That's right. I think uh, I think we're only on a, a forward uh, a forward trend with that. I don't think we're going to go the other direction where people are going to start taking more fish than than we have been. What's your views on uh, on the salmon farms? And that's the whole other aspect. We've got the recreational f- fishing side of the salmon business, which I I can't imagine really even scratches the surface population wise. Um, I think the real issue must be the industrial-sized salmon farms. So what can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, this has been a an issue that I've been working on for quite a while. Um, so obviously we have a quite a developing aquaculture industry on the west coast of Scotland, and um, Argyle is no different to anywhere else um, in, in, from that point. Um, so the issues really that we've picked up from our studies um, is like you say that the scale of the actual farming so uh, one farm site will probably have 10 cages yeah. and in one cage there's more farm salmon than all of the wild salmon that come come back to our Giles rivers in one so that's the scale in one cage in one cage yeah right there's more salmon farm salmon than the numbers of wild fish that swim back to all our rivers in Argyle. But what's the problem so, with that? So the problem really, I guess, um, from the fisheries point of view, there's two main issues. Uh, people will talk about pollution and all these other things, but there's two issues in terms of the significant ones, and that's disease and escapes. So when we talk about disease, I'm really focusing on a parasite called a sea lice. So um, it's a something. It's a it's a small parasite. Um, I call it a tick, if you like, that grazes over the yeah. uh, the fish's skin and mucus, and feeds on it. Um, and these have evolved alongside salmon and sea trout. Uh, they've been around as long, probably as long as salmon and sea trout. So what are the ticks? Um, but, what are the ticks feeding on? So they they feed on. They graze the surface. Well, we'll call them lice rather than ticks. They call oh, them sorry, lice. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they'll move over the surface of the fish and they'll feed on the mucus and the okay. scales okay. and even the top layer of the skin. So the problem with that is is, is that um, now there are so many hosts in the water 
So even if a farm salmon has a, a few lice, those, those lice are gonna be producing an awful lot of eggs. And then those eggs hatch and contaminate the wild fish. So it's just the sheer scale of, of the farming mm. and the numbers of lice on these fish that's causing um, wild fish to have higher parasite burdens than they would normally do. So when, the, when they get too many lice grazing the skin of the fish, so let's say a salmon or a trout smolt leaves the river, gets infected with some lice, and they start grazing its skin, um, usually a, uh, a fish it's, it destroys its salt balance. So the salt water in the ocean then starts to flood into the fish and the fish cannot like level its salt balance quickly enough um, to be able to deal with it. And so they have like uh, organ failures, etc. They become moribund, they're much more easily eaten by predators. And in the case of sea trout, sometimes they'll just swim straight back into fresh water. So they'll negate their, their sea um, phase of their life cycle and swim back to fresh water. So you're, so you're, saying, have... you're saying if they're inf infected by lice, they're more mm -hmm. susceptible to the transition? Yeah. So um, they won't get lice until they're in salt water. But when a, uh, a smolt... Um, goes from fresh water into salt water. That's a big change. Yeah. In, in so if, body. if they're if they're compromised in any way due to the sea lice, this is this yeah. Is they're, they're, yeah, that's a problem. So, and if they get too many lice, even when they're bigger and more used to salt water, that that will still um, uh, be a problem. And so, from the point of us studying that, it's more difficult to know what happens to salmon because a salmon smolt when it leaves a river it's basically it's, it's on a mission mm. it's going out to the ocean so it doesn't hang around if it gets infected by lice it's probably going to die somewhere outside uh, on in the ocean the wide ocean so and we're not a, going to be able to study on, that at all it's on a razor's edge while it's leaving the leaving the river with a massive change the biggest change in its life changing from fresh to salt water and then someone goes and uh, puts handcuffs on it by by infesting it with lice, it's uh, that's how it ends badly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, obviously, this doesn't happen to every fish, but we think there's probably enough fish getting infected with enough lice to make a difference mm. um, in terms of our survival rates on the west coast compared to, say, the east coast. Um, but what we can study, because the same the same thing can happen to sea trout. Now, sea trout have got a similar life cycle to salmon. Um, but they don't go dashing off into the North Atlantic. They actually hang around yeah. um, our inshore waters. So in sea locks, etc., we can um, net some and see what their parasite burdens are like and get an idea uh, of you know, what their health status is. So that gives us an idea, if you like, um, even though sea trout are probably more susceptible to being infected by sea lice than salmon. Yeah, yeah. So each spring we, we do quite a lot of netting in our sea lofts, trying to catch sea trout to study them, to see how um, see what their health status is like. And that gives us an idea whether that might have been a, a bad year or a good year for salmon uh, getting away to the wider ocean uh, unaffected or not.
Yeah, okay. God, it's it's a difficult business to be in trying to study something that you you can't see. Or... Yeah, it keeps moving around. <laughs> yeah, and there's no yeah, air so... down there where you have to study it. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is a lot of work trying to sample fish, um, and it's made more difficult. Obviously, if some fish die, you can't sample those; they're gone. Yeah. Um, they're not. They're not going to be swimming or swimming around uh, anywhere near you. They're going to be lying on the bottom or in some predator's stomach. Um, so it is difficult, um, but we we can get enough fish usually to get an idea of what's going on. So. Uh, how that's shown up really is um, in a bad situation. So let's talk about the farm production on a fish farm. So usually that takes uh, about 22 months, just under two years to get a fish from an egg all the way through to the product you might see in a supermarket. Yeah. So, and they usually put those fish out uh, in their first spring into, into the sea when it's smolted. And that will be in in the cages in the ocean um, for that summer and winter. And usually in that first year, the parasite levels are, are usually maintained relatively low because the biomass of fish in the cage is relatively low. Okay. It's when you get into the second year of that production cycle that you start to see issues because the fish are much bigger, they've been in the water longer, and so uh, there's more parasites around. So... In some cases, you can see this good year, bad year effect of the first and second year of, of fish farm production. Um, so we know there is there are links. Uh, it's not an issue every year, but some and some years are worse than others. Um, so it's it's a moving target, if you like, trying to um, um, pin a tail on the donkey, if you like. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we so know it's an issue, and then. So, is there any um, any data on, say, when uh, oh, I forget the name of the big salmon producers, but that when they say, "Okay, we're going to start up a, a salmon farm in in this area," and you say, "Okay, this is going to be good. We've got data from uh, the salmon population there for the last ten years," and then they chuck in a fish farm, and then this is what happens. Is there anything rock solid like that that you've got? Um, not for a single farm site, no. Um, I guess because um, before our fishery trust started in the late 90s, there was no data yeah. here at all on on the wild fish populations. The only data there was was rod catches. And here yeah. in Scotland, you know, you have to uh, your rod. If you own a fishery, you have to give a, a catch return to the government. Yeah, uh, and you're you're kind of taxed on that, if you like, and so which isn't a big incentive to reporting the right numbers even. <laughs> so even the information that was there before the fishery trust started was you know is, is a bit rocky. So we've restarted from scratch, and we started from a low point um, in terms of the salmon population. So I don't think we've ever had since in the last 20 odd years we've never had a, a true baseline of what should be here yeah, okay. um, so it's again it's a difficult one to judge and year to year even if things are okay you get a lot of variation in terms of the weather conditions um, whether spawning's been good and the eggs have survived well you get good survival years you know you get bad survival years that's just 
what being a wild fish is all about. It, you know, these things go up and down. It's like catches go up and down on, on the basis of that as well. So there's this, there is this natural variation and trying yeah. to figure out what's um, any kind of impact is put on top of that natural variation is very difficult. Um, and so I guess, I guess my personal view would be that, let's say, government scientists uh, have been slow to put some really serious monitoring together. Because we're, we're, we're small charities and I'm the only full-time person looking at you know, 30 salmon fisheries wow. and 300 other rivers and a thousand lochs in, in, you know. so you're, you're spread thinly um, with not that many resources and it's really the government scientists that have the resources to, to do these bigger projects Jeez, when you, th um, when you think like uh, if, you, if you type into um, things to do or see in Scotland on the internet salmon fishing is a <laughs> massive part of it and you're the only bloke who's, who's trying to <laughs> rein it in yeah, yeah, it is incredible in that way. That's mental. Um, and and well, on the pike side of things, there's there's no one. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, our fishery trust looks at all species, although all primarily right. our work has been the salmon sea trout. We're interested in all fish species and all the habitats, freshwater habitats. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so um, if you if you look at it from let's say the politicians' point of view. Um, they see this whole aquaculture industry providing jobs, uh, a lot of um, export revenues, um, and even they, and if you compare that with the rod catches, so the West Coast rivers probably um, produced about 10 to 15 percent of the rod catch for Scotland. So the big fisheries for salmon, uh, yeah. really the East Coast rivers, they're producing the big numbers of fish. Um, which sounds sensible from a, a politician's point of view, but when you look at the ecology um, of the West Coast, you know, a lot of these populations are um, distinctive in their genetic makeup. And so if we lose these West Coast populations, even though they're small, and they don't provide big fish numbers in catches or anything like that, they actually hold a lot of biodiversity of, yeah. of, of salmon in Scotland so from my own point of view and our, our movement we, we want that conserved and not destroyed so not to make the, uh, the fishermen the bad guy but do you think there's dodgy catch returns submitted by fisheries owners saying we don't want our, our catch, and, uh, catch and kill restricted in five years times I'm going to, uh, to write down that we caught way more fish than we did this year yeah, um, I'm not, I, mean, I wouldn't say everybody does that. There's, there's, um, there has been misreporting. I know that from, from my own experiences. But most people do report the right numbers and uh, will be want they'll want the uh, numbers of fish in their rivers to be reflected back to the government to say we need help. Yeah. But there are a few that would try to push up numbers um, to qualify for being able to take a fish yeah i guess um, it's not, there are very very few people like that very, it's not hard few. it's not hard these days if it comes to it that they'll have to not just have a catch report but to have a photo of the fish on a measuring board or something to uh, to curb that if it was actually a big problem but yeah i guess if you're if you're yeah 
if you're in charge of a fishery, you want what's best for it, and hopefully you're a bit of a believer in science and not some sort of climate change denier. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few about. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> so the other things we're doing to try to get assess these um, fish populations to is to kind of count the numbers of juveniles in the river. Um, so um, when the salmon come in to spawn, they put their their eggs into the gravel. Probably seen footage of that or, uh, on videos and stuff like that. Yeah, and those eggs will be in there over winter, <laughs> and they'll hatch out in the spring and become fry, start swimming around. So in the summer, we spend quite a bit of our time uh, actually trying to measure the density of those young fish in the river. And that gives us an idea of, of um, what the potential is in terms of the number of smolts leaving the river in a couple of years' time. Because you usually spend um, two, sometimes three years in the river before they swim to sea. So we get a chance really to measure the future, if you like, in yeah, terms yeah. of what might be possible. Um, so... We, I mean, my, uh, we call it. We do that through electrofishing. Might have heard of that. It's just a um, small amount of electricity in the water, which yep. stops the fish swimming, and then you can catch them in a net and measure uh, or count the number of fish you've caught in a certain area that gives you your density um, figure, and then you can compare that to previous years and, and uh, other rivers or your target. So, do you do and, that on? Um, do you do that? Uh... On the same site each year, on the same moon phase or the same water height, and we're going to have a net this big, and we're going to zap for this long. Yeah, well, the, the method is is pretty down now in terms of is is a, a standardised methodology. Yep. And everybody that does that around Scotland puts it all on the same database, so we're using the same methods. Yep. Um, we can't guarantee about you know the water height being um, so so or thereabouts. Um, we don't really worry about things like moon phases for catching these fish. That's no, all um, bullshit because... anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you like. Um, so um, we can get you're, a good idea of really you're the kind of, of guy we should be asking. You're the scientist. You're the kind of guy we should be asking. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's kind of a a mixed bag for me. And no, I've just... caught some really nice fish on on strong moon phases, and then you know blanked on another. So, um... so you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't call that a trend if uh, if you had to report it to the government. I'm sorry, Dean. I, I say Can you wouldn't re- you wouldn't report it as a trend if you had to uh, include it in your report at the end of the year. No, no. <laughs> Yeah, so we, what we're finding in these studies in fresh water is, is that salmon numbers in some rivers are, are really, really low, which is really, really worrying. Um, so we've been um, jumping about up and down about this for quite some time, trying to get government to take notice um, and change the kind of management of, of fish farms, etc., but to the, the moment, there's, there's a, a kind of an ongoing process where they're reviewing aquaculture. Um, so we can just sit and hope, really, in terms of um, it's going to improve in the future. Yeah, um, hope, the other hope. issue with the fish farming is, is the escapes. Um, in terms of when you get a pen failure or, or whatever, and farm fish escape, they are quite capable of, of spawning with wild fish. And wherever that's been studied, we know that the, the young fish that are produced by farm fish or a cross between a, 
a wild fish and a farm fish. They don't do very well. They can do well in fresh water. They're very competitive. They grow quickly. Um, but the survival rates at sea of, of those uh, farmed, young farm origin fish uh, is very, very poor. So you don't get any adults coming back. So that's a big one as well as the sea lice. So what's the theory behind that then? Well, um, it's like any farm animal, is that these fish that you have in farms have been line bred. So they go through a series of um, choosing of broodstock on the basis that they've done well in the farm environment. So you're, it's kind of where nature selects and natural selection, um, it selects traits. Um, so like a fish has like uh, 5,000 eggs because it needs those 5,000 eggs because nature is, is very selective. Yep. And the ones that aren't fit for the environment in that, in that particular year or two, um, they, they die. And so you only get, if a, if, a, if a fish has been successful, it might lay 5,000 eggs, but it will only produce two adults just yep. to replace itself and its part. So nature is very, very selective, particularly in these harsh environments. You see that where Atlantic salmon and sea trout live, so the farm but, fish, the farm fish are a lot more fragile, but they grow quickly and, well, I wouldn't say they taste. Exactly, so, <laughs> I wouldn't exactly. say they taste. They've been selected. They've been selected for all these different traits, uh, not natural ones, but ones that occur in the farm. Um, growing quickly is being a very uh, big one, and um, um, surviving well in culture facilities, which yeah. is not nat- is not necessarily a good for a wild fish. So we know that. When these fish have gone through this process, they are not very fit for the wild, <laughs> even though they've got, you know, they might look very healthy in terms of an adult fish. You know, it's big, fat, and healthy. It can swim up a river. It can still spawn, but its genes are compromised, if you like, and yeah, that's why sure. they don't survive well in the ocean. I forget where I saw it, but um, there was some uh, cra- crazy vegan talking on on TV somewhere, and they they were. Uh, trying to rev everyone up about um, you know not doing factory farming and, and destroying farms and all the rest of it and the host asked oh okay all these thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep and cattle what are we going to do with them once uh, if everyone just decides tomorrow just to, <laughs> to stop eating meat and she said oh just let them go that'll be fine <laughs> but, uh, obviously growing up on a sheep farm myself as soon as you let a yeah. sheep go out in the wild it's just parasites would just eat it eat it from the inside out and and predators from the outside (laughs) that'd be the end of it yeah that's they're they're bred they might be bred a bit uh, fragile but uh, just tough enough to deal with farming conditions and uh and premium uh premium uh traits to uh present to market exactly Exactly, and that's exactly what uh, is being done with farm fish. And most of the farm fish we have in Scotland, actually, are, their origin is from Norway. So they're you know from a different group of um, salmon populations. Yeah, uh, totally. okay. So their genetics are very different. What if they were to restrict, uh, say, salmon farms in Scotland to be bred from wild stock? Um, again, I think you can start with that. Um, quickly but you would soon get from yeah they wouldn't do well in farms and eventually the farmer would line breed them to a point where they'd be be not very good in the wild 
Um, I guess we're at the, at the point, a dangerous point, in that um, salmon are only f so far down the line of, of, of being bred for, for farming that they're still capable of breeding in the wild. Yeah. Uh, what we would, would like to see would be that you get come up with a fish which is not doesn't mature. So that would be the sensible way forward in terms of limiting the damage to, to wild fish populations. Or, uh, as is being asked, is to bring um, uh, salmon into fully contained systems to be farmed. I mean, I think in the future that will be the answer. We can't continue to do harm to both the environment, wider environment, and also to yeah. salmon, wild salmon populations at the current rate because they simply won't survive. So you don't think uh, sterile fish farming, sterile fish, would be the way to go? I guess. Uh, I guess. Yeah, it would still be a, problem, a way to go. With the sea lace. Yeah, yeah you, but you still got all these other issues. You know, it's a combination uh, of um, disease and parasites, and also you've got um, issues with chemicals being used in sea lice treatment, etc., yeah, sure. uh, causing problems for other things like um, shellfish and crabs. Um, so there's a, a lot of issues around aquaculture which um, for a young industry they've been trying to deal with and it's thing like sea lice is it, you will never win the battle you can only win <laughs> a war now and again it's, it's kind of like an arms race if you like because these things adapt um, very very quickly well One, yeah I was, um, was going to ask you about this um, I actually bumped into a guy who was uh, an aquaculture uh, man, he'd been all, all around the world setting up cobia farms and barramundi farms and mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. And he'd, he'd just moved to Edinburgh and his wife was working on um, breeding sea wrasse for the salmon oh, farms. Yes. And yeah. no doubt you would have seen the sea wrasse, I think it uh, started up in Norway. They started jamming all these little wrasse into the farms yeah. to eat, eat the uh, lice off the salmon. And then... Yeah. Somewhere along the line, a uh, a sea lice got born without much pigment, without any colour in its skin, and That's obviously right. the wrasse overlooked that one, and then he bred with another one, and he bred with another one, and all of a sudden there's millions of translucent sea lice. <laughs> the uh, That's right, the wrasse theory... can't see. Oh, it's amazing. The theory of evolution and survival of the fittest just exploded on these farms, and now there's all these transparent sea lice that the wrasse can't find, and they're just yeah, destroying exactly. their place. <laughs> it was well, yeah, it, it, yeah. it is that is tragic, and you know it's a it's a bit of a dead end for the sea lice, uh, the sea wrasse breeders, but. It was uh, an amazing demonstration, I thought. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And every, you know, if you, um, they've seen this with when they've used tried to use chemicals to kill or, yeah, or push true. lice off fish, is that they become immune to those as well. So they're an incredible foe if you're a fish farmer, uh, a sea lice. They're, they're incredible creatures, quite admirable, really. Um, <laughs> but a lot of parasites are like that. Yeah, I guess it's it's exactly the same as uh, why you have to get a different flu shot every year because whoever, whatever microbe stays alive, whatever sea lice stays alive to the next year, that's the one who's doing the breeding and on he goes under the right. next under the next salmon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was um, this guy reckoned that um, uh, his his wife was working on the on the ras breeding thing, but he thought the 
the real answer was sending salmon offshore in big subsurface cages and and breeding them out there. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I don't what did I, I don't think I found any fish being bred like that. But there was all sorts of proof of concept um, things done with yeah big spherical cages out out in the big wide ocean. But it sounds a lot more practical to have it all on land in closed systems with proper filtration and and you know you're just you're essentially growing protein really the less thing the less damage right. you can do the uh, environment the better i guess the problem for that is that those fish are very expensive to produce mm. uh, compared to a fish in a cage yeah. and while um let's say a scottish or norwegian salmon grower could do that um they they're they're the cost of their fish will be very high compared to someone like, like say, who farms salmon in Chile, um, who didn't really worry too much about the environment. Not, not saying that they don't, but if it's going to happen, the whole industry um, from Canada, from uh, Chile, Scotland, Norway, and these other countries, they would all have to do the same thing yeah. at the same time to keep the market um, balanced, if you like. Um, the, the other thing that is ongoing at the moment is a kind of a, like a giant sink. So it's a, a cage without any holes. And it still sits in these locations where they've got them at the moment, but they draw the water or pump it up from um, quite deep where there's no sea ice larvae. Yeah. And they pump it into these kind of giant bowls where the salmon are. And so you don't get any... Um, so you, you can then filter the water on the way out as well. So you're not pushing any, like you're not taking lice in, you're not pushing any out, and you you can uh, filter for things like chemical treatments or uh, health treatments, um, and you don't lose any food through the bottom. So I think these kind of systems will probably be the practical way forward, and uh, and I know that some companies are seriously looking at those things. Um, um... At the moment, you know. There's a lot of big demand for farmed salmon um, from all over the world, so it's it's big business here, and um, it means to, a lot to the local economy. So some balance has to be struck sometime, and hopefully it's going to come down uh, a bit more on the wild side than the farm side in the that, future. Um, that that uh, big sink type type system you were talking about, pumping water from the deepest of depths, surely, yeah. you know the. The smallest splash of water from from outside the system getting inside the system. All you need is two sea lice larvae, and that's the end of it. You'd never scrub it clean to to get rid of them again. You'd have to yeah, yeah. I think um, you can actually treat um, like a contained area quite effectively. Yeah. Um, so they've now got not just chemicals or cleaner fish. They've they've got things called a a hydro lice. So it's like putting a fish through a car wash, um, where it's got like high pressure water and little kind of brushes that physically take the, the lice off the fish. And you've all got a thing called a thermo lyser, which puts a fish through a treatment of warmer water or fresh water, something to knock the lice off. So there's other things being looked at and developed uh, in terms of lice control. Um, so, I think uh, there there are some potential improvements to be made, but at the moment, 
it doesn't look great. And we're seeing, even here in Argyll, you know, every farm wants now to be twice as big as it was um, five years ago, yeah. just for the scale of the economy. Um, so when you look at that and where we are at the moment, things don't look great, to be fair. I, I guess uh, I guess uh, at a point where you do have to learn along the way, like a lot of people wouldn't think about what actually has to be done from you know getting a leg of lamb for dinner, the amount of injections yeah. and drench- drenches and dippings and uh and yeah. you know parasite eradicating um treatments that they get through their entire life to get a healthy piece of lamb on your plate you know you look at the big things like well mad cow's disease and all the there's that's a that's an obvious uh pretty pretty well known one that a lot of people would known but there's all sorts of things that uh, sheep and lambs can get that no one would ever have heard of and you constantly treating them for it but i guess it's just yeah so well established and behind the scenes now maybe salmon farming will get uh to that stage eventually yeah well, well i'll hopefully get there sooner than later, rather than later. <laughs> um but yeah um we, we have to i guess remember that it is a fairly young industry uh still um i think our, our big issue is the fact that some fish farmers don't accept that they have an impact on wild yeah. fish. Yeah. And um, some politicians are the same. And um, the fish farmers have the ear of the politicians at this point in time. Um, so uh, we, so we are you... just trying to highlight the issues to the politicians and keep a, a kind of public profile on it. Um, so you know, the people who vote um, might be able to put pressure pressure on and different environmental groups there's quite a few groups that are trying to highlight the issues yeah um, i think i've seen them um there was a big drive over christmas it's uh you know a time of of uh fattening up and time of plenty for everyone but back in the day salmon was reserved for kings and queens and it was a very luxurious food item and there were um, there was environmental groups um, vouching for you know, just abstaining or or just refusing to buy salmon outright. What what would your guidance be? As uh, you know, not not have it every couple of days for your for your lunch, or uh, just uh, stay yeah. away stay away from the wild caught fish, or just ignore it altogether. Well, I think you'll find it very hard to get hold of a wild caught salmon um, from Scotland, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you catch one. If you're fishing a river, a grade one river, where you can take a fish, um, even if you caught that fish with a rod and line, you're not allowed to sell that fish. It's only for personal consumption. Yeah. And things are so poor now that all the netting stations have been closed. Okay. So um, it's very difficult to buy a wild salmon from Scotland. Yeah. And if you're offered one, it's probably not wild, or it's illegal. <laughs> it's, been, it's been poached. Um, so it's, it's you know, wild salmon as a, as a table food um, from Scotland is 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 is, is tight, if you like. So there is only farm fish left. So so do you eat? I guess farm, what we were. Do you eat farm fish? I don't know. Um, 
I don't know, I've just been working around the subject for too long maybe. I'm sure the product is fine to eat and um, tasty or whatever. I just see um, all the other things that hang around the salmon farming which do harm to, to, to wild salmon and sea trout. So I, I, yeah. personally, I don't. But. Yeah, I, I, I don't see ever the actual flesh of the salmon being being bad for you. Obviously, um, I'm not sure what the what the department is over here, but uh, government departments who are in charge of what their population consumes are extremely strict. There's You're not going to find uh, Absolutely. the toxic yeah. chemicals and all that sort of shit that people claim to be in all sorts of uh, food these days. Anything that you stick into your mouth in this country legally is going to be safe, but on a sustainability level, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm lucky. I well, that I'm might not... change after Brexit, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be scraping limpets off the rocks of the Fourth River. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually um, picked up a fish allergy. Oh, I don't know how long I've had it now, but um, but uh, even a few years before then, I actually abstained from ever buying fish to cook myself, just because you look at well, I. I sort of compare it to, um, you know, when we got to World War One and World War Two, and the and everyone worldwide saw. Now we have industrial ways of killing humans, and it's just getting out of control. Yeah. We have to do something yeah. about this. That's what that's how, sort of how I look at, you know, factory okay, yeah. fact factory ships and and dredging the oceans yeah. and just ripping out whatever yeah. we can. Um, I, like I said, I am allergic to fish now, so I couldn't do it if I if I wanted to. But if you can, as a fisherman, look at footage of those factory ships just dragging, constant, constantly. Yeah. They ne- they never yeah. go into land. They might go to land once a month to unload for half a day and then be back out there again. I just can't do it ethically. If you want to, yeah. if you want to feed a fish that much, go out and put the effort in and uh, and catch it yourself. But yeah, I think eventually you just have to get to the point where you just say we can we can catch these fish too easily now, unless the science gets so good that they can say this is a sustainable fishery and this catch rate is all right and it's been all right for the last thirty fifty years. Uh, but <laughs> I don't see that happening to every fishery that's commercially available. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things have been fishing down the food chain. Mm. So all the the big um, key species have been taken in some of these fisheries, and then they go on to the smaller fish, yeah. and you end up just fishing for um, shellfish. Yeah, <laughs> well, so you can. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure fish. You can, if you look here on the on the west coast of Scotland, then um, I think it was in the mid 1980s um, they lifted the trawl ban on inshore waters. So. Yeah. Prior to mid 1980s, you, you couldn't uh, bottom trawl uh, around coastal waters okay. in Scotland, in sea locks and that kind of thing. And there used to be, I mean, I remember you know, reading the Angling Times when I was a kid, when I was living down south, and you'd see these great catches of, you know, cod and conger, uh, all these species, you know, usually around Arran and the Clyde, around the Clyde, and all up the west of Scotland. Yep. You could catch lots and lots of fish. And as soon as they lifted that ban, all those those recreational fisheries, all those charter boats, they all went, all fished yeah. out um, super quick. 
And now what remains is, you know, is a prawn fishery and a scallop dredging industry. Yeah, so yeah. The, di the diversity isn't there any longer. Um, it's just just a few trawlers you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, yeah, it's a valuable fishery in that um, places like France and Spain will buy those scallops and those, mm -hmm. they'll buy those prawns and those nephrops um, and they're quite high um, economically valuable species. Um, but you, when you've got it here on your doorstep and you, you know what should be there, you know that there's no diversity left in, in, you know, in, the, in the fish in the sea even. So, you know, that's all very sad and needs, needs changed. Yeah, there must be insane amounts of pressure for these government scientists, you know, people in, in your job to give the stamp of approval and say, this fishery for this species is sustainable and here's the, uh, here's the number that we're allowed to take out this year. Like the, and to keep the, even the prices per kilo um, low because the less fish there is, the more the price goes up. It must just be... You know, you'd hope there's yeah, some damn, right. you'd hope there's some damn good science behind it. Otherwise, <laughs> I don't see it getting any better. I guess cod cod's a cod's a good example of um, a fish that was pretty much extinct and um, it's back somewhat. But God, if you knew uh, where that fish has been back in the day, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to buy a uh, a piece of cod from the chippy. Yeah, yeah. There is a few things going on um, locally now. It's got, we have some marine protected areas, mm. and these are areas that have been set aside, if you like, so there's no trawlers, Yep. and there might even be some uh, limited pot fishing. And it'll be interesting over the next sort of decade, if you like, um, or so, to see how those places recover, um, because, you know, that, that could be the way forward, that bigger and bigger areas are protected against, um, well, protected from trawlers. Yeah, sure. And so some of the some of these the kind of habitat is restored, and we'll get better production of of young white fish and and a bigger diversity, you know, in 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 the fisheries. So to get away from the doom and gloom, I think actually when I first bumped into you, you were putting in place on Lockor a what was it a maximum size limit on trout to try and protect. Uh, the large, yeah. There was a there was a percentage of of trout that get to this certain size that would definitely be ferox. So it, let's get away from the the horrors of yeah, uh, yeah. commercial fishing and, and, <laughs> and, and tell us. Uh, yeah, so we talk about tell us positive. your pride and joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess ferox trout. Um, you may have people may have heard of them, and that they're a kind of a, a brown trout. Uh, they live in these large locks, and they mostly feed on Arctic char. That's a controversial um, statement to start with, that they're brown trout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, they are brown trout. And, um, <laughs> but they could, you know, it could be classed as some populations are genetically distinct from others. Um, you, know, you, know how, Hall, you know how hard it's been to try and talk to someone on this podcast about... Uh, about ferox trout trying to do a whole episode on it no one wants to tell me anything about how to catch them where to find them <laughs> it's a secretive no, okay. it's, a, it's a secretive business it is i mean um I, I think the problem is is that information is hard won yeah <laughs> so someone like myself has been fishing i mean i i, 
I was very lucky. I caught a ferox the first time I fished for them <laughs> here in Lahore back in 1995. Yeah, and, right. um, and I've been fishing on and off for them ever since. So and I, you've, and you've probably I've caught, been, you caught three since then. Yeah. <laughs> Not far off. Um, <laughs> I mean, if I catch three double figure fish a year, I'll be very, very happy. Um, but th- there's, um, they are, the, the information is hard one. They're not easy fish to fish for. And that's down to the fact that there aren't very many of them. They're quite, yeah. quite a rare thing. And, um, so here in Lahore, we know that the, the ferox population here in Lahore is distinct from the brown trout. And that, that means that they spawn separately. Yep. Um, they don't mix with other trout and their life history is, is totally different so a normal brown trout in Lockhaw grows to maybe a pound and it probably takes four or five years to do that wow. um, and it might spawn once and then die some of them might spawn a second time but they rarely live more than five or six years yeah, okay. um, but a ferox trout um, they can live more than 10, 11, 12 or more years and they will kind of grow to some super sizes and we're talking 30 pounds, you know, a metre long trout um, and so the thing that makes um, Lockhaw different to most of the other locks is that they are genetically distinct and they seem to start feeding on other fish earlier in their life than ferox populations elsewhere which don't have that that genetic distinction so i think um you have to look at lahore in a different way than some of the other um lochs around scotland where uh, the ferox trout there they're part of the, the brown trout population but they're just individuals within that population that move on from eating insects to start eating fish and they seem to be able to Doing so you can say that they're kind of there's more than one type of ferox. Okay, I've, like some I've, of them I've in re- some locks is part of the same brown trout population, and in in a few locks they are genetically different. It's a very messy, that's why I think very messy sexual history to the ferox. Yeah, nature is very messy generally. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It, it doesn't sit in, into nice, um, neat categories or pigeonholes as yeah. we would want it to. It's not like it, you know, every. Not like maths or physics or something. I think I read a, a good exactly. quote about. I read a good quote about uh, ferox that uh, all ferox are brown trout, but not all brown trout are ferox. Exactly. <laughs> That's probably the, the only the only true one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, right. So, um, so the lock ore fish are, are definitely special, and that's why the uh, the record is there, and that's why freaks like yourself go and troll little bits of uh, metal around for half your uh, lifespan for the odd bite. Yeah, that's, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are such an amazing fish, and they they are such a rarity. If you like, you know, I think um, Ron Greer called it the last of our. Um, uh, our, our ice age megafauna you know the yeah. woolly mammoths have gone saber-toothed tigers are gone um but the last one remaining is that is the ferox trout <laughs> um so it's got a, a certain um 
there's a bit of an enigma, if you like, and yeah. a bit of mythology in there as well. It's just an amazing fish um, that it can survive in the depth of these um, these locks, you know, feeding on uh, other fish, and survive uh, how it's how it's done um, and grow to the sizes that it does. So you which uh, are you know. Sorry, you'd uh, crunch the numbers and you impose this size limit on trout, thinking that at this certain point, there's, I think you were saying there's a 90% chance that this trout is actually going to turn it, well, it, 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 this trout is a ferox. Once they get to this size, yeah. there's a 90% so chance. We know, so we're, we're better off letting them go in lock or. Yeah, we know from genetic studies and studying the life history of these fish, both the brown trout and the ferox, we know... Um, the, the, the normal brown trout, they rarely get bigger than 36 centimetres yeah. in length before they croak it. So therefore, uh, anything over that size mm. is going to be a ferox trout. So yeah. it's very, a lot of study went into this. We had a, a, um, a PhD student from Glasgow University do a lot of work. And it's all using all my data that I've collected over you know, <laughs> uh, 15, 20 years and a lot of tagging work that's gone on. Um, so to come to this point where we can come to that simple kind of um, decision to say, okay, anything bigger than 36 centimetres is highly likely to be a ferox trout. Therefore, yeah. you have to return that fish back to the water. And if you've so, got any questions, here's my numbers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we can actually prove this. That's Although right. I have had that's... people attempting that, talking rubbish, but... No. <laughs> well, this sort of stuff can't be taken lightly, can it? It's uh, when when fisheries make the decisions about uh, about bag limits and about maximum or minimum sizes or slot sizes. It's it's not just some old uh, bloke down the pub taking a stab in the dark. These days, it is due to hard one fact and and data. Um, I don't know if Absolutely. you listen. I don't know if you listen to uh, Ron G Greer on the podcast talking about the new, hopefully new uh, pike size limits that they're going for in Scotland. Oh right, okay. I don't know about those yet. Well, there's, there, think, there isn't um, a, there isn't a lot of data on that one in particular. It's uh, more of a preventative measure. But uh, yeah, we talked a lot about. Um, yeah, the different the different minimum sizes, maximum sizes, and slot sizes, and it sounds like uh, sounds like you reckon you've got the equations right to uh, protect the ferox. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, that we've done the right thing here. Um, how, how, many, how many is there in Lockor? Well, we we run a tagging study, and um, we came up with three different answers in three different years. Yep. And the average was just under 200. Wow. So so you have a whole population of 200 ferox trout or thereabouts swimming around in 38 square kilometres of water, <laughs> surface water. And you are some mental. Of them are up to 300 foot deep. Why would you so, fish not all those fish will be big ones. <laughs> uh, it, it goes to show how vital the protection of them is you know if if someone plants a wrong pine plant plantation in the wrong feeder stream or someone sprays too much chemicals in one area or it's just it's a catastrophe waiting waiting to happen especially if it coincides with a bad breeding season or something 200 fishes living on a razor's yeah. edge 
well, the, the, the things, they're late maturing. They don't probably spawn until six or more years old. Yeah. Um, the good thing is that they will survive spawning and they could spawn several times. So as long as we are able to let them spawn and there's enough of them to maintain a healthy genetic population, then they should you know, keep going into the future. Yeah, sure. I think um, the days of trophy shots of anglers with, you know, big trout, dead trout, are gone. And, you know, cast fish and all this kind of thing. So the future is knowing what we've got, and that's a very rare, rare and a very wonderful fish, and trying to do our best to look after it. So if you estimate there's 200 of your precious little pets that you've been studying for 15 years swimming around in this ginormous lock, uh I know ferox fishermen are very particular when they catch a fish in trying to identify it. How many individual fish have you caught? Lucky. Um, <laughs> I'd say I actually haven't, haven't counted here on Loch Hall. Um, you could I, probably, I guess it's between. You could probably figure out how many fish have you caught that are currently in the lock, couldn't you? Yes, I probably could in terms of going to take scales from the fish so you know how old they are and how uh, how much longer they're likely to live. So, you know, you have a turnover in the population and that kind of thing. So, um, I mean, I haven't fished solidly every year I've been here, but probably the last 10 years I've, I've got a bit more adapt at fishing and spending a bit more time at it. And um, I'm, I'm, I might have caught between 30 and 50 ferox trout, I don't know. Wow. Um, something of that ilk. Um, so, so I know, I know it's in, a, I know it's a, a bit of a touchy subject, but if you were to go out and try and catch a ferox trout at the best time of the year, at the best weather conditions, the best wind, the best temperature, if you could uh, dial in whatever circumstances you wanted, barometric pressure, anything, mm-hmm. what would be your perfect recipe? I guess. Um, Firstly, I think you have to have a few days. You need yep. you need that time to dial in. You just need um, that time to just, actually run into one of them. Yeah, well, yeah that's right. You know, so um, <laughs> even if they're on the chew for a, found, if they're on the chew for a week straight, there's two hundred of them in a however big a lock. Uh, the thing is, that they're not on the chew for a week straight. The feeding windows that I find are relatively short. So if you've got five days of fishing, you might get one of those days where the fish switch on. Yeah. If you're lucky, you'll get two two of those days out of five where the fish switch, at some point in the day they'll switch on. So what would so, that day? What would that day entail? I guess um, it can actually. I wouldn't say that there is any one particular set of circumstances, um, but one I find is it changes in air pressure. Okay. So if you get a, um, what I wouldn't like, I don't like fishing in is is when a big low pressure system comes through. Right. Um, I prefer to fish on a rising air pressure. Okay. I generally find that the fish are more active uh, on a rising air pressure. Certainly, uh, from my experience on Loch Hall. Is that uh, similar? So, similar for just regular brown trout? I'm not too familiar with the trout side of things 
Yeah, I mean, usually, um, if you let's, let's say a fish are feeding on insects, like usual brown trout, mm. and insects, a lot of the time, they hatch out on a rising air pressure. Because yeah. an insect reacts to air pressure. If it hatches and starts to fly around as an adult when it wants to mate, it wants some reasonable conditions to do that. Yeah, sure. And so they'll be sensitive to air pressure. Um, so usually you, you can get some good hatches of, of flies as, as, as the barometer rises. And, and if you're going to get a few settled days of weather. So I'm always happier or more hopeful um, when the air pressure is rising. So do you think um, that do you think that's possibly if the rising air pressure brings on smaller fish to feed, it brings on the ferox trout to come in after them? And eat yeah, them? I, I I definitely get that. If if you see um, smaller trout feeding, I, I, ferox tend to be I think more active. Yeah. Okay. So. And even if you've got one rod out for small trout, and you'll get if you're getting the odd small one, then I'm I'm much more hopeful than if I'm catching no small fish. Yeah, okay. Because um, I know the small fish are active. So I think um, particularly with um, you know, with a predator, an open water predator like a ferox trout, you know the the fish that it's after, like char and things like that, they're school fish. And when yeah. fish are in a school. It's quite a defensive position, isn't it? They can yeah. out because you've seen them outmaneuver predators and all this kind of thing. Um, when they're in a shoal, confuse predators by their numbers and the way that they move. And I think um, when these shoals break up to start feeding, that offers an opportunity to a predator like a ferox trail. So yes. I think it, when those other fish start feeding, I think the ferox are very uh, keyed onto that and they'll start. They probably fancy their chances more than when a, when, a, when there's a school that's tightly held. So are you, what are you looking mainly for? For like, uh, do you look for char on the sounder, or do you look for wind lanes, or do you look for big rocky points or islands, or do you have any uh, places if that you would go if you were to be plonked on a new uh, a new lock somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think this is why you know you need a number of days at yeah. it because you'd have to cover a lot of water take a look at a lot of water and make your mind up of where your best chances were so if you get a steady wind um over a few days then that's going to push a lot of surface water into one part of a loch yep and, and if that's a a wind that's warming the water then it's actually going to increase increase activity so that's what I would be looking for in terms of if there's a a, um, a definite wind direction and it's pushing uh, warmer water and food into one particular area of a lock, I would okay. concentrate there first to see what was around there. That would be a primary option. Um, I mean, I know people talk about you know, divide a lock up into a grid and then you know, fish each grid, um, but I tend to take the environmental cues, if you like, yeah. by looking at the weather even for a few days before I go fishing uh, not just when I'm fishing to see what's likely to be happening in any one particular part of the lock where the warmer surface water is going to be pushed and that could be uh, completely change if that temperature of that wind is actually colder than the water in the lock 
So if it's a cooling uh, wind that's, that's dropping the t water temperature, the fish might avoid that totally. Ah. So then you might avoid the surface layers completely and then start going deeper. See, this is so why you, you have to kind of think about. Go on. So this is why you have to think about, you know, what's happening beforehand, and and also while you're fishing, and what we, might be happening in the, in the near future in terms of the the weather windows. So this is why I've been looking forward to talking to you, since you're a, a man of the hard scientists. Well, biology is not a hard science, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you <laughs> might be. One. You might be less prone to the dreaded confirmation bias that most fishermen would be. So, have you ever gone out there with like a, a temperature probe or an O2 probe? You're dropping through the water after a couple of uh, good good catches of ferox and try and get a bit of a, an upper edge using your credentials. Yeah, I just I things things fluctuate so quickly um, in terms of the weather. And the lock itself um, is constantly changing. You know, the, the weather's constantly changing, then the conditions are constantly changing. So you kind of get an idea from what you're seeing on the fish finder in terms of uh, where most of the fish are. And then it's a question of trying to put yourself in those areas often enough um, with your baits, hopefully effective ones, in the right depths. Um, to where the fish might be feeding and then it's down to the fish you can only do so much um you know a lot of this is down to the fish as well so i concentrate really when i go fishing on fishing well trying to trying to um lower the or increase my percentages by by trying to find those fish first yeah. up and trying to see what kind of depths they're in because this is a it's not like most river fishing, which is a two-dimensional spatial game. This is a, a three-dimensional game <laughs> in that you're not only looking, you know, uh, across the loch in terms of where fish might be, you're also looking in the depth as well. Um, so trying to get some kind of lure into the kind of, uh, in the sight of a, of a ferox and make it look like something that it might want to eat. So it's a, it's a, a difficult game and one that needs patience but there's an awful lot of um, things to be learned but that and for me that's the pleasure um, always learning I would, I would never um, see myself uh, as a some kind of expert because I'm always learning well no I don't think there is any uh, true ferox trout experts that's for sure <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there isn't <laughs> So um, do you have any theories behind uh, baits versus lures at different uh, temperatures or, or weather pressures or or, uh, or do you have any yeah. real real preferences over what it takes to actually trick one of these uh, freaks of nature? Yeah, I, I think um, in terms of, uh, I think the kind of air pressure and temperature things go a little bit hand in hand. And um, and that can affect the speed um, of which you present a lure or a bait. So it's much easier to present a lure quickly compared to a bait. Um, yep. Much of the bait fishing tends to be slower. Yep. Um, trouble with when you fish slow, um, you're not covering much water. So you might be fishing a bait at one mile an hour, 
but you would want to know that you were you were pretty near fish because you weren't going to even if you fished um, uh, for twelve hours straight, you were only going to going to cover one little line um, twelve miles long. But if you were fishing at three and a half miles or four miles an hour with lures, um, you're fishing you know you're covering three times the amount of water. Yep. So you, you might say, okay, I've got three times the chance because um, you've just covered more water. Um, trouble is, is fish react differently to different conditions. Like I said about the, ri the rising air pressure, is that I find that trout generally will um, far more willing to chase things, fast-moving things, when there's a rising air pressure. Yeah, okay. So um, it's similar They're lines. much more lively. Similar lines to yeah. how people seem to approach their pike fishing, high or rising pressure, go towards lures, and uh, yeah. lower, slower times column. go towards braid. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So I think that generally that's a thing that fish do. Although I would say um, the only exception to that might be salmon and that they might become more active on a dropping air pressure <clears throat> because I think it's going to rain. <laughs> and they can start to migrate. Now, there's, there's different things for different fish, but for ferox, I, I, and certainly the locks that I fish, um, that's the kind of traits that I see. Although, you know, when you get a falling air pressure, um, I do slow down, and I do, if I've got good bait, then I would use it. And then uh, every now and then, when it's really low pressure you'll have a, a red hot day on the lures and then you'll just like go to yeah <laughs> you'll never get to sleep that night <laughs> yeah there's always the exception from the rule i mean that's nature that's there can be other factors that that's an outlier you just ignore that yeah absolutely <laughs> no they don't ignore them they're just there are other factors um at play that you can because you can't keep tabs on every factor if you, all you can do is think about general rules um, yep. And they're always there to be broken. There's, you know, there's always exception to those rules, um, which I don't think you should beat yourself up for. Really, all you can do <laughs> is do your best. <laughs> so it seems, um, it seems it's a, it is a, a quite a strange game. The old uh, lures for ferox trout. The the thing that everyone seems to model their lure selection off is like um, people trolling for salmon, like especially the. The Norwegian salmon guys, everyone seems to uh, to really get all over that stuff using all these sorts of techniques with big, well, not, you know, staying away from lures that are just plain bibbed minnows that swim in a straight line, going for things that have crazy, swooping, erratic, like proper erratic, bizarre, bizarre actions that, um, you know, even brown trout, we've got things in Australia like... Um, uh, Tasmanian devils that have that big yeah. swoop, swoopy erratic action. Yeah. It seems seems to seems to be what people use for the the ferox as, as well. It, with uh, even with the strange attractors and stuff as well. Just give us a rundown on on the gear, like with the downriggers and uh, the the different sort of lures that are going on. Yeah, um, I guess um, the downrigger. I guess is. is you, you, it's not so much that you're you can fish really really deep. You, know, you can do if you want to. You can you know, fish a hundred foot deep, but what it does do is give you control of depth. Yep. So you might be seeing something on the fish finder at a certain depth, um, and you think, okay, there's a school of fish there, and there's some predators hanging around it. 
Uh, but your lure or your bait only swims half as deep as uh, um, where those fish are at. Yeah, so yeah. then the downrigger then enables you to accurately try and um, get your lure at that certain depth where you think you know you, you might be in and around um, those prey fish and those predators. Sure. So, and there's certain lures um, that you know fish quite well um, from those, and there is these these things called a cut plug. I think that's what you were talking about. Got a very oh, yeah. erratic action. Yep. Um, so they, they were designed primarily for fishing for salmon in Canada in the yeah. sea. Um, but they do, trout and salmon at times do quite like them. And I'm saying, I think they like them more when you get these um, rising air pressure systems um, and are willing to chase things because they're, they're, I think they kind of tease the trout a bit. Yeah. And they're quite, quite erratic. It's like, like playing with a kitten, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to get it, just just to make it uh, sort of commit, and and even if it doesn't want to eat it, just to say, oh, what's that? The only thing they've got to feel it with is their mouth, and uh, and it's all over. So I think you know, if you quite often uh, people fish, say could be between two and four cut plugs, you know, in the same sort of zone. So they're actually creating this big fuss in the water, which uh, a ferox might sort of mistake for a, a feeding shoal of char or, uh. or an area where other predators are active and there's school fish moving around wildly trying to escape them. So there's, there's that's a, a ploy that many people use in terms of um, fishing the depth accurately. Although I say one thing that you have to be careful about when you read your fish finder of how deep you think a fish is. Um, yeah. Because what the the fish finder is telling you is actually how far the fish is away from your transducer, uh, rather yeah. than exactly what depth it is. So, the so outside, you have to be careful about it. The outside of the cone is a lot deeper than. Yes, the exactly. Yeah, sure. Exactly. And at that depth, so, it's uh, going to be quite a yeah, difference. So that's why you see people have um, two downriggers, and um, and they might fish two lures off of each downrigger at different depths. So you're covering your, your kind of areas, if you like, or the depths, hopefully effectively. So it gives um, you a chance. Yeah, even those uh, the dead bait rigs that you guys use have the the same swooping diving sort of action as well, don't they? It's like a, a dead bait that sort of has a, a hard sort of head casing around it that um, has a couple of trebles attached, yep. and that sort of dives and swoops all over the place. Looks. Uh, Looks absolutely bloody horrible for any other fish species, but <laughs> apparently they like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess um, it's about attraction more than anything. I think because it's, it's actually very difficult to get a lure on the nose of a falx trout. Yeah, you know, because you're relying really them as a visual predator to yep. see that bait from some way away. Um, so getting their attention might and, be better than uh, <laughs> might be actually better than the lifelike paint job on your lure. Yeah, exactly. So first thing is is make sure that fish sees your lure, <laughs> and I think that might be, might be one way of doing it. The other thing I think those kind of wobbled fish give off is is a good um, change in water pressure, if you like. They move around and they they sort of feel like more than they are, which yep. is, could be a either a dead fish or a lump of plastic. 
So no. they they look alive. Yeah. I think then and they're not naturally swimming. So no. you know, a naturally swimming fish might be able to outswim or or or, or move to the side of a, of a hunting uh, predator, but yeah. if a fish is swimming slightly differently, it, that that then the then the predator senses weakness. Yeah, if you have it's a, like a, if you just have a regular bib minnow trolling by in the boat swimming straight, and a big ferox swims up behind it, he'd be used to it darting away from him instead of just swimming there slowly in his face. So it's either yeah, it's either I have to eat, mean, eat it or let it go. People have caught ferrets on straight troll minnows, yeah. and I've caught them as well. Um, it does work, um, but I think um, that, that they're a bit like a wolf in that they will pick off the weakest yep. um, caribou in the herd or the uh, weakest reindeer or whatever. Um, so they're looking for for things that um, there's something wrong with the fish, and then they know it's an easy meal. So I don't think actually other fish are actually that easy to. To hunt down and, and kill um, in in open water, so they're not really like pike in that they sit for the most part amongst weeds or rocks at the edge. And they do do that occasionally, I'm sure. But when they're actively hunting out in the open water, it's actually quite a difficult thing to do. I think is to you know um, hunt down a single fish and, and uh, outswim it and catch it. Yeah. And it helps a lot if that if that prey is a, is a is a little bit handicapped if you like. Just uh, one one quick question on the ferox. What's your strangest ferox capture? One time when you thought, bloody hell, I, I didn't think I'd catch a ferox doing that. Oh, crikey. Um, I've, heard, yeah. I've heard of them breaking the surface, chasing fish before, which <laughs> seems pretty strange considering everyone's Yeah, fishing, I, I actually fishing get a with... close call, actually. Um, I have actually been pike fishing uh, with a jerk bait. Yeah. Um, off the edge of some rocks and um, all of a sudden um, these small fish topped around me and then these um, backs broke out of the water, it's flat calm day and there must have been four or five ferox around oh. my boat feeding on ch- pushing char out, out into the surface they were jumping and I had all I had with me were these big jerk baits because <laughs> uh, I was fishing for pike at the time and I, I cast around, and I had two hits off of ferox trail. Yeah. And these things were big, you know, pink pieces of wood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't hook up on them because I think the hooks on them were too big. Um, so I had two hits, and I didn't hook up, and then they were gone. You know, these <laughs> little things—they last thirty seconds. It lasted for two casts, and I got two hits. That's it. They were gone. The child yeah. was on. The ferox were gone. I can tell you've thought about it but, uh, late at night as well, saying, "Oh, I think the hooks were too big." <laughs> yeah. What an excuse, yeah. huh? Uh, well, that hasn't yeah, haunted. Right. That hasn't haunted you ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily I've caught a few since then, so you tend to forget those. Well, you remember them, the little lessons, but. Uh, um, I prefer to remember the good days. That's right. You've got to be strong-willed if you're going to go chasing them bloody things. That's for sure. Yeah. So I think, to... um... Sorry, I'll interrupt you. I've I've had you on here for so bloody long. I I just got to get to these uh this at least one other topic that you uh that you emailed me about. I I had plenty to ask you about Alan, but um, 
I may as well just uh, sneak one little bit in just before I let you go because uh, otherwise I'll <laughs> I won't let you leave. Now, um, you gave me plenty of topics about Scotland and stuff, but uh, there was a few little trips overseas that you've done as well. And well, you, mm-hmm. can probably t- you can probably tell me how to pronounce it properly, but the Masir, the, uh, oh, Masir big, yeah. the big fish in India. Um, let's, yeah. just, let's just sneak in a little teaser of that before, uh, before I let you go. What, what is a Masir and what have you uh, done in regards to fishing for them? Right, um, I've, I've been to India um, four or five times in Nepal, and it's one of these fish that have um, been in my psyche for quite a while. Um, Marsia is is a kind of a big barbel, if you like, and they are Lives huge. In, uh, they can they can grow very big. Um, and they like live a, in some fantastic places in like the as long as your Himalayan bathtub. foothills. Sorry? Like as big as your bathtub. Some of them can be that, that big. But, <laughs> um, I think uh, the, the thing about them is that they are an amazing fish and they live in huge, powerful rivers in the Himalaya. These are golden mass here. Yeah. And um, the environment that they're in is, is absolutely amazing. And um, the fish themselves, if you ever hook one, they they just pull and pull and pull. Yeah. And um, in fantastically fast and powerful water, they're, they're incredible. Um, I think um, they, I'm told this, I don't know if this is actually true, I'm told that they have the ratio between the surface area of fins compared to the body is the largest of any fish. Ah, so, okay. I've never heard that theory before. Yeah, so they're extremely strong anyway in their bodies. And With they're, the, uh... they're kind of torpedo shape. But the actual amount of fin area that they've got means that they can twist and turn and, and use their petrols like hydrofoils um, to, mm. to actually meet the demands of these big, powerful rivers. And also, you know, you can catch them on lures and um, even flies. Um, so I've been a few times to northern India and Nepal um, trying to catch them. Um, there has been just as many failures as successes. Um, and like with any kind of fishing, You'd the weather that, can blow you, you out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the weather blows you out. Um, so you can put a whole year into planning a trip <laughs> and you get there and the monsoon started and the river's big and brown and you know you don't have a hell's cutting chart. Yeah, that's funny. I'm, no, I'm, I'm staring down the barrel of that at the moment. In about uh, 20 days' time, I'm flying back to Australia and uh, uh-huh. in about 30 days' time, I'm, I'm flying to Queensland, driving, well, hopefully driving for eight hours across the country, but at the moment, every single road is flooded and closed. <laughs> I saw the whole of Queensland's underwater, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that that clears up, and then I've got a 130-kilometer boat ride up into the middle of nowhere. So yeah, yeah, weather dependent, you could say that. Oh right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you plan these things from so far away, it's it's you can't control the weather. <laughs> yeah, especially and, all the way. In when India. I was younger, sorry. Especially as far as India, go. Yeah, yeah. And it's not only that, you know, you, in these rivers, you've got local issues, you know, you've got plenty of poachers. Um, I think poachers, all they're doing really yeah. is, is trying to feed themselves. Um, 
Um, so you've got lots of pressures. There's lots of hydro dams and that going into some of these big rivers. So the world of the marsir is diminishing, uh, like many other fish species in the world. So um, it's been a dream of mine to try and catch a, a very big one. I've had, um, in the last two years, I've had a couple of trips where one was was okay. We caught a few, uh, had some action, and um, which you're grateful for, because uh, you can go there like last time I went and catch nothing. Yeah, so what's um, uh, when you say you caught a few, what... Uh... What sort of size or how many? And, and just I mean, the, these are really, they were only, only small fish up to sort of um, 16, 17 pounds. Yeah, right. They still, um, they still pull pretty hard in, in the current, though. Oh, them. absolutely, yeah. I mean, they're, they're good fun fish to catch. And just so, give us a quick outline on what sort of gear you have to use. Well, usually uh, I use like stepped up or, or similar sort of to salmon or pike yep. lure fishing gear. Um, probably a two and three quarter or three pound test curve rod, um, ten to twelve feet, um, sort of fifty pound braid, and yep. a heavy fluorocarbon leader, and you're flinging anything from Toby lures through to um, Rapala lures, that, that kind of thing, and you can also kind of live bait or dead bait for them as well. Yeah. So there's a range of methods you can use, uh, like yep. for any other predator. I, I like the active fishing um, for, yeah. like, using lures. Good man. Yeah, okay, so first trip, got a couple. Second one, wash out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, blown out. Um, so, um, But the previous two trips to that were, 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 I did in the mid-90s. And again, I went to Nepal and I booked myself on a rafting trip, which was going to last two weeks on a big river in Nepal. And um, we were trekking in with all the gear, the porters and everything to get started on the rafting trip. So we were going to fish our way down the river from the rafts and from camps. And as we went in, then an early monsoon started and the river just went big and brown, you know. Came up ten feet and was brown, <laughs> so that was that wiped out. The, the rafting was pretty hairy. Ah, yeah, fun. you get a good story um, out of the, it anyway. Yeah, I mean the, the, that side of it was excellent, um, but that blew the fishing out. And um, and before it closed, I once went to the Corvary down in southern India, and well, by that time it was all too late. And it, you, you kind of be, be there at night waiting to go fishing in the morning and you'd be hearing dynamite going off and that kind of carry on. Oh. So you knew that the place was being destroyed um, um, in front of you, really. So Marcia are another, like like Ferox trout, I think they're just fantastic fish. Um, <laughs> and I love, love fishing for them. Whether I catch them or not is, 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 another, is another matter. So what if they... Uh, what if... India decided, okay, we've obviously got a natural resource here where these stupid uh, stupid Brits want to come over and pay us big money to catch our fish. Uh, we need a full-time fisheries biologist here right now to sort it all out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to sort out. Um, <laughs> if you think uh, west, of, west Coast of Scotland's got its issues, then um, the little bit I've learnt about uh, the politics around fish uh, and water in India is just another level. Yeah. Um, so the, the piece of river that I fished the last two trips, um, they um, they banned angling 
um, for uh, a period. Okay, yeah. Um, and now we're waiting to see if they're going to uh, bring it back in a different form with a different licensing system. Um, the problem is, I think this is all a bit of a game, a political ruse to allow in or stop objections about a new dam that's supposed to be going in, right. um, which will then flood this area where Marcia spawn. So, so get the fishermen out of the uh, picture. The with, were, get the fishermen out of the picture with a ban, and then uh, there's no yeah. one to there's no one to whinge when you want to put a dam in. Yeah, exactly. So, it's all politics. Unfortunately, and yeah, a few people stand to make an awful lot of money, and the majority of people will be harmed, and you know, and the resources will be harmed by it. But there's not a lot you can do here, sitting in the west coast of Scotland, about what goes on in northern India. No, is that a, is that um, northern India? Is that uh, more like a wet and dry season place, or do they have four seasons there? Yeah, yeah, they, they have a, a monsoon, um, but they also have um, ice melts as well. Oh, right, so the best yeah. two periods, <laughs> that, um, so the best two periods are usually kind of end of September, October, and November, and um, and there's a period I think um, will be uh, March as yeah. well. So yeah. March, April. So before wow. you get too much ice melt and the rivers colour up. So there's those two periods where the, the water's fairly clear. Yeah, okay. Which is good for lure fishing. Um, but that's in the north, kind of west, that's on the Kali River. Um, but if you go further east into Himachal Pradesh or Assam, into other rivers, then the seasons are slightly different. Yep. Um, so it depends, you know, on the temperatures uh, and also the, when the rains turn up, because the Marcia use the, the the wet season to migrate when the water's high into the upper tributaries to spawn. Yeah, righto. Yeah, okay. A whole different ball game altogether. It's like it's like fishing uh, for salmon, a bit of a lottery, but then you're doing it, you know, a few five thousand miles away. So it's it's, it's even more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're, a sucker. Challenge. you're a sucker for punishment, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to just give us a, a rundown on um, what you're working on at the moment or what your year ahead holds for you? And um, I'll let you go and um, get your beauty sleep and, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, what, what lies ahead for a senior fisheries biologist? Um, well, I, I kind of work is... Um, it's kind of split up in throughout the seasons. So just at the moment, we're kind of in the cold um, February, March period. Um, I'm just finishing up writing reports and finishing up in the last few contracts. And then um, as sort of April, May, June comes along, we start to do some netting in the sea locks for uh, sea trout. We start to look at the parasites yeah, on yeah. the sea trout. This might be related to the uh, salmon farms. Um, and usually, uh, sort of March and April, I'm trying to get some time off, a uh, bit of a holiday, maybe do some ferox fishing. Yeah. And um, as we go into the summer, uh, into 
late May, early June, we will be doing um, some habitat improvement. So we do a bit of work um, trying to improve habitat in rivers for fish. It could yeah, sure. be anything from um, easing an obstacle like a, 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 um, a culvert or might be a problem to fish movement or a bridge apron or something like that. Yep. Or we might be putting some wood in rivers that increases the kind of diversity of the habitat available. So where we got opportunities, we, we, we try and take those in that time of year. Yeah. Once we get into July, then we start to do our counts of juvenile fish. So that's doing our electro fishing, trying to estimate how many young fish there are in the rivers and what the strength of the year class is. And um, could be doing that all over different rivers in Argyll and, and the islands. So we do quite a lot of travel around uh, at that time. Yep. And we also might be doing some surveys of new habitat. So we get um, contracts to look at proposed hydro schemes or wind farms and to see how that might affect habitat and give our, our advice on not affecting it. And then we kind of cycle round into the spawning season into um, October and into November and December. And if we get enough time and the water is low enough, uh, I try and do some snorkel counts. So um, there's a couple of rivers I get don a, a dry suit and <laughs> jump into the river with a mask and snorkel and, and try and count fish. So <laughs> in some of these um, smaller rivers, it's the only way to, to get a good handle on how many um, salmon there might be yeah, from year right. to year. That's great. Which is a lot of fun, if yeah. a little cold. <laughs> I reckon. Um, and I would advise that to any. I'd recommend it to anybody because it's <laughs> such fun. Um, Invigorating. And you, you get, yeah, you really see salmon at their best when they're you know swimming around in a pool. Yeah. Um, and then um, we get around to year end. I do some red counts after the spawning, so we go and count the areas. The number of reds or nests that the yep. salmon have made in the, in different areas, so we get an idea of the of the uh, of the spawning activity, and then uh, I'll be writing all that work up and reporting it um, to the people that have paid for it, and then we start again um, in the spring. Yeah, right. So that's, that's the kind a, of yearly cycle, if you like. That's that's a, a hell of a job. It. Uh all sounds very interesting i know there's a few rivers rivers near me where they uh they're screaming out for volunteers at certain times a year for for different jobs where people can get their hands dirty are you guys uh, in need of any volunteers up your way for any uh particular jobs like that or you keep it all in-house yeah we're, we're always oh, we're looking for volunteers particularly when uh, we're doing habitat improvement yep. or the sea trout sampling where people can Give a hand uh, pulling a net in. Yeah, it's okay. always, always interesting because um, uh, uh, we need at least four people to be able to operate a net, and um, I'm, I've done it with two people, but it takes it really takes it out of you. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not getting younger. So well, you are, yeah, yeah, you are volunteers for that. You are senior, aren't you? Yeah. So we, we um, and also take people out to, to see what happens with the electro fishing because. People are always surprised about yeah. how many young fish there are in rivers. So it's always, if you get the chance, 
then um, go out and have a look because uh, it's always interesting. Yeah, that's fantastic. So if uh, if someone wanted to hit you up, uh, if they're in the area to do some volunteering, what's the what's the details that they should be looking up? Yeah, they can find us um, our website, uh, argylefisheriestrust.co.uk, although we've got a Facebook page as well. Get yep. in touch that way. Um, we have an office in Inverary in the, in the castle grounds. They come and say hello. Um so yeah, there's a few ways to get in touch, but usually um, the website will give you all our contact details, or um, quite easy to find us on Facebook. Yeah, and you'll uh, you'll put them to work. Absolutely. I've also Absolutely. I've also done my due diligence and uh, must have Google searched you, but you do a bit of guiding as well in between your um, your real job. Yeah, I, I, I kind of I'm a sucker in that. I, in some of my holiday time, I, I take people fishing. I get quite a lot of pleasure out of um, it's usually um, foreign visitors. Yep. So introducing people um, from abroad to uh, our kind of ecosystems and our fish and the way we're fishing for them, um, you know, is I find quite rewarding. And it's great when they catch a fish uh, yeah. as well. So and occasionally some of them actually teach me stuff, so which is great too. <laughs> yeah not bad not bad well it sounds like a not a bad way to spend your time in between uh fishery science and and guiding folks uh, is there anything else you do in your spare time or you're just a purely fishing man oh um i do i guess i do i do enough walking and exercise with my job so i don't do anything <laughs> sporty sporty um the other things i do is uh doing that a house and um, making sure I've got enough firewood for the winter and um, trying, <laughs> old, trying to get old, my boat in, into the right shape for the coming uh, season so that's always work and yeah. uh, stuff, a bit of engineering stuff and have electronics and that kind of stuff and awesome. to keep the boat up to scratch Well, dedicated fishermen and dedicated scientists it's been awesome to have you on and great to pick your brain it's been a bit of a, an indulgence for me being able to learn especially about the uh the salmon side of thing good to have a bit of a, a crash course in that and i hope everyone uh listening learns a thing or two from you and learns that they never want to go ferox trout fishing for uh, at any, <laughs> any point in their lives <laughs> oh just before you say goodbye I'll just give you a, a quick plug on a, a book. Yeah. Um, it's called The Fish of a Lifetime. Ah, okay. Is um, this is uh, a... Ron Greer, wasn't it? Uh... No, no this, this is a guy called Adam Perna. And he's got a collection of big fish stories, which he published late last year. And if they want to learn a bit more about the ferox fishing, I've done a, an article in that book. Ah, right. So that's um, Fish of a Lifetime. It covers a whole range of species. Xander, pike, carp, bream, all specialist angler stuff. Um, but I, I've got a chapter in there um, related to the ferox. So maybe if people are more interested in a bit more info on ferox, they can have a look at that. Yeah, so that's uh, Fish of a Lifetime. Is that just a physical copy or can you get a, a digital one? I think it's just physical at the moment. Old school. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. It's the only way to be. All right. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll definitely uh, I'll look that up and I'll make sure I, I'll link it in um, 
the show notes and uh, on the Facebook page and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's been good catching up with you, mate. I'm sure we'll do it again sometime or I'll see you down the line. I won't be at, uh, at the opening this year, but all the rest of those uh, scallywags will be up there flying the flag, no doubt. I'll be in uh, 15th of March. I'll just be getting back, hopefully, from my mission across Queensland catching ginormous barramundi. <laughs> wow, where are you going? Ah, uh, yeah. Where are you going? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> uh, you so can. I, I had a friend up in Cooktown for a while. Um, All right. Who kept asking me to go over? I never made it. If I. If we actually make it out there, uh, if all the flooding subsides, I'll uh, I'll send you the video. Good man, good man. Well, tight lines with that. <laughs> yeah, cheers, mate. Uh, yeah, it's been awesome right. having you on. It's been uh, it's been nearly a year that I've been holding on to your your little card, but um, yeah, I'm sure if uh, I'm still doing the podcast, we'll do it again sometime down the line. That's great. Cheers, Dino. Good on you, Alan. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye.